Well, thanks for all the nice things, encouragement. When you said Bill would be as proud of me as I, you got me there, man, that got me. No, thank you. I don't, don't, can't think about that. Uh, I want, uh, I have just a very few questions and answers, uh, things to look at. And, uh, um, but what I want to do is, this may seem all backwards, but what I want to look, do is look at 16, 9 through 20, and let's just get that issue sort of out of the way. And then uh, I didn't want to close our teaching time on Mark with talking about the controversy of the last few verses that, you know, let's don't end it that way. Uh, because it honestly is not that complicated. And I want you to understand when you see in your Bibles those lines, and it says the most reliable early manuscripts don't contain 16, 9 through 20. I just want you to know a little bit of, of, of what's behind that. And, uh, and let me say, it's, I don't understand it all. It's really complicated. Text, text evidence and all these manuscripts, and they're from different areas, and... and uh, it's, um, I mean, there's a later Greek manuscript that's like fifth century that is really valuable because everyone's positive it was translated from a, like a second century Greek manuscript. So here's a fifth century manuscript that's really more accurate than a third or fourth. It's just, it will go, make you crazy after a while. So I boil things down so that I can understand them. So I hope, I hope this will help you. And this is, this is not, not, not complicated. So, okay. okay, where do babies come from? Okay, I can't do that question right now. So just let me say, let me say this, okay. Um, the, the King James translation is based on a codex, a book, uh, and it was fifth century, and it was called Alexandrinus. It was a translation that was put together for the court of Constantinople, and it was in the great uh, library of, uh, of Alexandria. Okay, so the fifth century, Alexandrinus. Uh, that manuscript has six, nine through 20, okay? It also has the pericope of the woman taken in adultery, which is all of our favorite stories, okay? So it's not just a simple matter of, we, you know, we're not going to rely on 6, 9 through 20, but we're going to like, you know, 8, 1 through whatever that passage is because we really like that story. Okay, we're not going to do, we're not going to just simplify it that way. So King James is based on a 5th century. That was the oldest one they had, the oldest complete manuscript they had. And also, of course, the Latin Vulgate, Jerome's Latin Vulgate. Okay, and it had these things in it. Now, they found later, later, uh, later on, they found older manuscripts that were third century or th around 350, and that's Vaticanus and Sinaiticus. And those older manuscripts, plus a lot of older manuscripts, don't have uh, 16, 9 through 20. They're not in the older manuscripts. Neither is the story of the woman taking adultery. It's, they're not there. Okay? Um, the earliest church fathers do not mention 6, 9 through 20. It's not in their Bibles. That's why they don't mention it. They don't comment on it. Uh, neither do they comment on the story of the woman taking adultery because it's not in their Bibles. So let me, let me recap for you. This is a, the appendices of, uh, and this is all Bill's scholarship. Let me just read this to you and then, and then we'll move on, okay? But does this help? It, it's, it's not, you know, I see every now and then they say on Facebook, there'll be this list and it's, it's all these red references and someone saying, 
all these are left out of these new translations. They're in the King James, but they're not in. And the, the, the implication is NIV is really evil because it's leaving out all these things. And it's, it's not that simple, and that's not really, it's not really even true. So don't let people stir you up like that, okay? Uh, but let me just read this to you, and then I'll give you the points. And uh, don't bother writing this down. Just, I want you to get the, kind of the impact of this. This is a brief overview of the basic issues regarding uh, the later additions to Mark Gospels, Mark's Gospel. In fact, there's not even just one ending. There's two different versions of this ending. There's a long one and a short one. Okay. Um, uh, I chose to present the information here and, and didn't put it in the body of the commentary, which are all reasons I just... Um, a serious study of various texts and their different levels of reliability calls for an entire book of its own. Um, but here, the, these are the ba main points. One, these are textual evidence supports uh, that support the conclusion that Mark ended his gospel with 16.8. And here's the evidence. First of all, the two earliest complete manuscripts, which I referred to before as Vaticanus and Sinaiticus, the two earliest Greek, uh, complete copies of Mark in Greek end with 16.8. There's an important Latin version, that's that 5th century one I was talking about, that ends in 16.8. The old Syriac version, as well as the two most important Georgian versions, end with 16.8. These are different manuscripts. This is the important one. The church fathers, Clement of Alexandria, Origen, Cyprian, and Cyril of Jerusalem, show no awareness of Mark 16.9-20. It's just not in their Bibles. They don't comment on it. Eusebius, 4th century, states that accurate copies of Mark end with 16.8. Eusebius says that. Uh, Jerome, 5th century, echoes this testimony. He states that almost all Greek codices do not contain 16.9-20. Um, that's literary or text evidence. Here's literary evidence too. The literary evidence of style and vocabulary based on comparisons between the first part of Mark and this uh, this 9 through 20, um, shows that 9, uh, 16, 9 through 20 is not consistent with Mark and our authorship. The language changes, basically. It, the language changes. Uh, three, both Matthew and Luke follow Mark until 16, 8. Then they diverge completely. Uh, four, the transition from Mark 16, 8 to 16, 9 is awkward. The subject of 16, 8 is the women, the presumed subjects of 69 is Jesus, so the subject changes all of a sudden. Five, the form, language, style of Mark 69 through 20 show that Mark did not compose this portion of the text. Its origin can be traced to the early second century when it was noticed that Mark appeared to be incomplete because the gospel did not report any appearances of the risen Lord. And finally, the response of the women to the evidence of God's decisive intervention in raising Jesus from the dead is described by Mark as terror. The women are terrified. They're standing outside the tomb. The cause of the women's fear is the presence and action of God uh, at the tomb of Jesus. The first human response is overwhelming fear. Mark 69 through 20 seems to contradict that. So there's just some of the, some of the evidence. Um, Bill was was adamant, he would say, it's not Holy Scripture, it should not be preached on. Um, I'm not smart enough to be that dogmatic about it. So there it is, okay? So let's, let's go back to where we ended uh, um, 
yesterday and, and jump back into the text. Um, chapter 14. Now the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him, but not during the feast, they said, or the people may riot. The the population of Jerusalem goes from 50,000 to 250,000. That's why people are sleeping in the Garden of Gethsemane and Bethany and the outlying regions because the town is is cram-packed with people, okay? Um, So they're trying to keep a lid on things during uh, during this whole time. While he was in Bethany reclining at the table, and did I show you that? Did I demonstrate reclining at the table? Hey, Terry. Okay. Okay, I'll do this while I still can. This is, uh, this is actually pretty cool. This is how you eat in Jesus' world. I don't want to do it that well. I don't have my back to you, but you, you are leaning on your left elbow, which is your bathroom hand, and you're, there's a table here and you're eating with your right hand. When we say reclining, that's what he's doing. That's why the woman in, in, uh, in Luke 7 can stand here and weep and her tears fall on his feet. He's reclining. The Lord's Supper, at the Lord's Supper, he's reclining. That's why John can lean up against him. When you see, actually see how it works, it all makes perfect sense. Da Vinci got it wrong. He's not sitting at a chair. Da Vinci's a pretty good painter, not a very good, you know, Bible student, uh, Leonardo da Vinci, okay? So he's reclining. And in a world where you eat with one hand, what does that indicate? That indicates slavery. The slaves cut up your food for you. You eat with one hand. And the slaves serve the food. Okay, so he's reclining, leaning on his left elbow, eating with his right hand. At the table, uh, in the home of a man with the unfortunate name Simon the leper. Now, if they're all eating together, trust me, he's not a leper anymore. And almost certainly, why is he not a leper anymore? Because Jesus has healed him. Uh, It's it's, uh, in the same town as Lazarus. There are people who believe for reasons that aren't completely clear to me, that Simon may be Lazarus's brother. Because, you know, those are cool ideas, but, you know, we can't, we can't prove them. Um, so he's at Simon the leper's house, and a woman, um, Mark doesn't name her, uh, John names her, uh, okay. Um, a woman came with an alabaster jar, a very expensive perfume made of pure nard. Nard is a plant that grows in the foothills of the Himalayas. So you can imagine how precious it is. Uh, She broke the jar, which means it's never going to be used for anything else from this point on, and poured the perfume on his head. Let me give you a recap of the anointings of Jesus because we get them all confused. Okay, in Luke 7... A sinful woman anoints Jesus, right? We know that story in the home of Simon the uh, Pharisee. That woman has been superimposed because people don't read their Bibles very, you know, very clearly. Those stories have been superimposed on each other. And as a result, the greatest um, 
misunderstanding to me of any character in the Bible besides Jesus is Mary. This is Mary, okay? She's not a sinful, she's not a prostitute, right? This whole thing that's come out of Mary's, that they, we, we've put Luke 7 on, uh, superimposed on these, uh, on these uh, stories and you shouldn't do that. That's not how it works, okay? Clear enough? Okay, okay. You know, there are books that have been written about her, that she's this prostitute, and that's all because of this misunderstanding. But let, let me give you the other uh, anointings, and, and I'll give you the details. So the anointing in Luke 7, that's a sinful woman. It's early in the ministry. It's in the home of Simon uh, the, no, uh, yeah, Simon the Pharisee, right? Yeah, Simon, I have something to say to you, yeah. Okay, Matthew 26 has an anointing. It's in Bethany. At the home of Simon the leper, a woman anoints his head for burial. The disciples object, and Jesus memorializes her gift. It's the same anointing as the one in Mark. Okay, so Matthew 26. This is Mark 14. Um, it's in the home of Simon the leper in Bethany, anoints his head. It's a woman for burial. Those present object, and Jesus memorializes her gift. That sounds like the same one to me. John 12, it's in Bethany, uh, where Lazarus lived, the town where Lazarus lived. And John tells us who it is, it's Mary. Uh, She anoints his feet, he mentions that. Judas objects, it's specifically Judas who makes the objection. And uh, Jesus, the, the, the memorializing isn't there, but Jesus makes this point that the poor will always be with you. You will always have poor in the land, which I think he also says here. So, the conclusion is there are basically two anointings. There's one earlier in the ministry by a sinful woman, and there's one this, this one later in the ministry right before Passover, and it's Mary. Okay, I just want to sort that all out for you so there's no, no misunderstandings. Okay? Verse 4, some of those present were saying indignantly, now we know from John that this is Judas saying this, Indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages. Um, and in the text just says 300 denarii, but the translators say, well, that's a year's wages. A denarii is a day's wage. Uh, more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. And that's very consistent, isn't it, with how the disciples have postured themselves in Mark. They're always rebuking people w- within Jesus' reach. They don't want the parents to bring their children. They don't want Bartimaeus. You know, it's, they're, they're always rebuking um, people that are trying to get close to him. And uh, naughty disciples. <clears throat> Leave her alone, <clears throat> said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. And I love this is... This may be, I think this is the only word where Jesus uses, Jesus used the word beautiful. It's the word kalon. It can be noble or beautiful. Um, so ask yourself, what does Jesus think is beautiful? When he wants to define the word, what does he think? And he thinks of this moment. This is, what, this is his definition of beauty. Someone who sacrificially gives and loves, you know, loves well. And um, that's, in his mind, that's beautiful. <clears throat> She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you. Now, my, my note is Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy 15, 11. There will always be poor in the land. 
But I have a new idea. My new idea is he's not quoting it. Jesus frequently, we say he's quoting, but he's not quoting. He's not quoting Deuteronomy. He thinks in Deuteronomy. You know what I'm saying? And you maybe you know people like that. They know their Bible so well, they just think in biblical categories. And I really do think that's what this is. So he's, it's not, you know, cross-reference Deuteronomy 15, 11, Jesus quoting that. No, he thinks in the Old Testament. He thinks in the Bible. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want. So that's a good thing. Help the poor. That's a good thing. But you won't always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. His constant insistence, I'm going to be killed. You know, and the third day raised to life. So he's going to bring that up. And here is something that's completely unique. He doesn't say anything remotely like this about anyone, including the disciples. He is making what she just did a permanent part of his story. Ladies, you should be really encouraged by this. You should be really encouraged. I mean, we should all be encouraged by this. But to see his openness and his, um, the value he places on what this woman has done is amazing. Listen to these words. I tell you the truth. That's his important way of saying I'm about to say something really important. Amen. Whenever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has been done will also be told in memory of her. In memory of her, he memorializes what Mary did. And like I said, there's nothing remotely like this. So we need to um, really listen to this text. Um, Then Judas, one of the 12, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted. Oh, we've got a guy on the inside. This is good. We got an insider. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money, so he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Now, Matthew 26, 11, yeah, Matthew 26, 11, Matthew tells us that when Judas goes to him this time, they give him the 30 pieces of silver. They pay him kind of up front. And this is my new idea. I just thought of that this morning. When Judas is sitting at the table with Jesus for the Last Supper, he's probably got that money in his pocket. I'd never thought of it. I mean, I knew that he'd gone to the high priest six days before. You know, I've read that in the gospels, but I never realized he probably has that money in his possession. Yeah. So Judas is not this pawn that God somehow put in this inescapable situation of fate where he blah, 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 blah. You know, you always hear these stories about Judas. Judas is a bad man. He's a bad man. The betrayer. Uh, so he watched for an opportunity um, to, um, to hand him over to him. I saw another new thing um, in, in the arrest that I, that I, uh, about Judas that I'd never seen before, too. And I'll show you that in a minute. Well, actually, let me tell you now. Um, just let me, just, as, long as, as long as we're talking about Judas. Um, this is, uh, don't go there, just listen. This is 1444. Now the betrayer, At this point, Mark so detests Judas, he won't say his name. He uses a circumlocution form, a roundabout way of saying. So Judas becomes the betrayer, because I'm not going to say his name anymore, okay? The betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man, arrest him, lead him away under guard. 
So Judas tells him, okay, yeah, I'm going to kiss him. And then you lead him away under guard. I had never seen that Judas had said that. So not only is he kissing him, okay, the one I kiss, so arrest him and basically tie him up and take him away. Judas said that. So yet another reason for not liking Judas. Not hard to find reasons not to like Judas, but there's another one. Okay. Um, Verse 12. Yeah, I'm watching my time. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the, the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? This is Thursday, the 13th of Nisan, 33 AD. We know exactly what day this is. So he sent two of his disciples, John or Luke. Luke 22 tells us this is Peter and John. They become a team, Peter and John. So he sent two of his disciples telling them, go into the city and a man carrying a water jar, I really want that to be Mark, will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, Where's my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. I wonder if this is the same. Um, well, if, if it's the same house they're praying in, in, uh, in Acts, I think it's all Mark's house. I think the early church begins, I think, in Mark's, Mark's house. Maybe that's why he knows this detail. I don't know. But if you know anything about Passover, you know it's extensive preparations. It's, it's uh, cooking the lamb and making the relish and the bitter herbs and all that kind of stuff. It's fairly extensive preparation. And, uh, and, Peter, and Peter and John are, are assigned to do that. It's a big job. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the 12 while they were reclining. There it is at the table, um, eating. He said... I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. That's the moment of Da Vinci's Last Supper. You know that? Da Vinci's Last Supper, Jesus has just said, one of you will betray me, and they're like, they strike those poses. It's like circles of shock. You know, there are what, four groups of three, and one of them is like, you know, so that's Da Vinci's, that's the moment. Um, One of you will betray me. Interesting, we just heard the details of what Judas was going to do, and, and now we know that Jesus knows about it. Uh, one who was eating with me, they were saddened, and one by one they said to him, surely not I. You see him you know, sort of going around the table. It's a three-sided table that they're, they're reclined at. Going around the table, he said, not me, is it? Not me, is it? It's one of the twelve. And that's an indication to me that there are other people at the supper there other than the 12. I think, you know, maybe a few of the 70 are there. Who knows? Some of the women are there. So uh, Jesus says it's it's one of the 12. Um, Yeah. One who dips into the bowl with me. Now here we can go to John. John lets us know where by sitting, pretty much. Well, he, he lets us know where three people are sitting. Uh, we know that John is sitting at Jesus' right hand, probably, because Jesus is leaning on his left elbow, and John can lean up against him. So John is here. We know that Jesus and Judas dip into the same bowl, which is an indication that probably Judas is sitting on his left hand. 
Now we all know from custom that the right hand is the place of honor, right? In Judaism, the left hand is the place of the intimate friend. When you have a party, you, you know, it's an honor to sit at the right hand, but my, close, my closest friend sits at the left hand. And if you know the Psalm, you know, my own intimate friend has le- lifted up his heel against me. That sort, of sort of points to this. So they're reclining, and he says, I tell you, one of you, one of you is going to betray me. And we know from John that there's this whispered thing that goes back and forth, the one I dip the dish, you know, dip with the bread into the bitter herbs, basically. And Judas dips, they dip, and uh, we know who it is. Uh, one who dips into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he'd not been born. And I, I see Judas hearing that and Judas hardening his heart even more. Okay. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks and broke it, gave it to his disciples saying, take, take it, this is my body. So the, the bread is reminiscent of the manna that God provided in the wilderness. That's what it is to remember. Passover is all about remembering things. Uh, I mean, even Passover, we're remembering when the Lord passed over. We put the blood of the lamb on our doorpost and the Lord passed over us and we, we didn't die. So the bread is, is reminiscent of the manna and now Jesus appropriates that image to himself. Jesus is the manna. And he says this in John. He's the bread that's broken and you eat this bread and you'll never be hungry again. He's providing water. You drink this water, you'll never be thirsty again. Okay? Um, he'll say, you know, they ate the man and they died, but you eat this bread, you'll never be hungry again. So here he's, he's making that ident- identification. Take this, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, and they all drank from it. So it's a common cup that they pass. This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. He said, I tell you the truth. And here he's innovating because the, the traditional toast at the end of Passover is this year in Jerusalem, next year in the kingdom. They still pray that. This year in Jerusalem, next year in the kingdom. Okay? And Jesus innovates. He said, I tell you the truth. I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. So there's a reflection of the little Jewish piece of Judaism there. When they had sung a hymn, which is the final step of Passover, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So they're in town, they have this meal, and they go back out to, uh, to Gethsemane. Now John, here the Gospel of John gives us Jesus' longest discourse. It's like three chapters long when they're walking from the Last Supper to the Garden of Gethsemane. Very, very long discourse in John. Uh, and so you know, if you want to insert those three, it's like 13, 14, and 15, or it's right around there. Um, so I think this is, uh, this is probably after, as they're walking. You will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the, sh- the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. So when Jesus thinks of that passage, he sees it prophetically as explaining what's about to happen. He's going to be struck and his sheep are going to be scattered. But after I've risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. And I don't hear people talking about this enough. From the, 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 after the resurrection, the message that the angel gives, the women to give 
the disciples is, meet me back in Galilee. Meet me back in Galilee. That's why in John 21, they're back in Galilee. And some people say, well, they're fishing. Well, they must have given up and he's going back to fishing again. No, they're waiting. They're waiting on Jesus. The, uh, uh, the, great, the great commission happens in Galilee. And then the ascension happens back from the Mount of Olives in, uh, in Jerusalem. So it, it's kind of an interesting thing to get in your head, the, the, the chronology of the post-resurrection appearances. And, and sometimes it's difficult, but it's, it's not as simple as we think it is. Because I always assume the Great Commission happens right before the ascension, but that doesn't happen that way. It doesn't happen that way. Um, no, I lost my place. Where am I? Okay, I'm back. Um, yeah, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if I'll fall away, I won't. He's been thinking about the meal. Listen, I'm your guy, right? And they, as far as we know, they, they had the closest relationship of any of the disciples. Jesus have, has a best friend, it's Simon Peter. And so he can come alongside Peter or Jesus and say, you know, even if everybody falls away, I won't. Um, I tell you the truth, Jesus answered today, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. Um, I'm trying to read my note, but I can't. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. Um, I'm just kind of standing up for Peter here. In the garden, who is it that grabs a sword and jumps in the middle of two to 600 armed soldiers to defend Jesus? It's Peter, right? So um, don't roll your eyes at Peter. Roll your eyes at Judas all you want to. <laughs> don't roll your eyes at Peter. He means this, right? He means this. He's not just popping off. And he is ready to die for Jesus, only it just doesn't work out that way. It doesn't work out that way. That's not what God had intended you know, from the beginning of the world. Um, he should have in the garden. Hmm? Striking the servant with the sword in the garden. Right, he, right. he's striking the servant, uh, the servant of the high priest in the garden with a sword, cutting his earlobe off? No. I think that all happened without anybody knowing it. I think Jesus heals it without anybody knowing it because if they'd seen he'd drawn blood, they would rest at Peter too. Yeah. Um, so in a sense, Jesus is kind of keep a, keep a lid on this thing. Okay. So they went to a place called Gethsemane, which means a place of crushing because you crush olives there to make olive oil. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. So to the eight, nine, ten, eleven. To the eight, eight, nine, ten, eleven. No, to the nine, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. To the nine. He says, okay, you guys stay here and then the three are going to go with me farther in. Sit here while I pray. And I think in John it says, pray so that you won't fall into temptation. He's worried about them. He knows exactly what's about to happen in a couple of hours. But true to character, he's worried about them. Okay? So, um, so he takes Peter, James, and John, the three, his three mighty men, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. He knows exactly What's going to happen? My soul is overwhelmed to, with sorrow to the point of death. He said to them, stay here and keep watch. So their, their assignment is to, is to keep watch and let him know when people are coming. Well, we know they fail at that. 
They fall asleep. Jesus is the one who sees that people are coming. Okay. So stay here and, and keep watch. And um, does Mark talk about it? I don't think so. But I think in John, Jesus comes back three times to check on them. He's checking on them to see if they're okay. Now, just try to wrap your mind around that in terms of his character. Pray so that you won't fall into temptation. And then he's checking on them. That's who, that's who Jesus is. So uh, going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if it was possible, the hour might pass from him. And that is just a raw look at the humanity of Jesus. Jesus goes in the garden and says, if there's any way out of this, I want out. That's what he's saying. If there's any way out, I want out. And then he calls God Abba. Um, Abba is Aramaic. Uh, the word for father is Av or Ab. A- Abraham, Ab. You hear it in there. That's Ab. But what does, the little, what does the little baby say? Abba. It's like Papa. That that's, comes from Latin. Pater is the Greek word or Latin word for father. Pater. So the little baby says Papa. See, it's baby talk almost. And a lot of people had called God Father. The Pharisees called God Father. Our Father who art in heaven is a Pharisaic prayer formula. But no one had ever called him Abba. In no, in, in no ancient literature anywhere do we have Jesus, this, this, this uh, phenomenon of referring to God as Papa or Daddy. That's baby talk. Daddy, Papa, Abba, same thing. So in desperation, he, call, he cries out, Abba, Papa, he said. Everything is possible for you. And doesn't that sound like a child talking to his father? You can do anything. Everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. I want out. Yet, and here's the, here's the victory. This sentence is why we're all here. <laughs> this sentence is why we've been saved. Not what I want, but what you want. That determination that this, if that hadn't happened, the cross wouldn't have happened. So the, the, the victory in one sense was really won in Gethsemane. When Jesus said, you know, thoroughly every fiber of his being says, I want out. I'm getting out of here. You know, the Judean wilderness is just over that hill. He could disappear and they'd never see him again. And, and clearly not what I want, because what I want is this not to happen. But I want what you want. That's the shape of his life. And because of that determination, um, when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of his son. That would have never happened without that little moment. Yet not what I want, but what you want. Then he returned to the disciples, and John lets us know he's checking on them, and he found them sleeping. And again, don't roll your eyes at the disciples. I think John says they're exhausted from sorrow. Think of everything they've been through, you know, especially Peter. Um, I've got a long list of, I call it, the, I don't have it with me, but it's called uh, the long, a long day for Peter. And this final day, there's a whole series of events where Peter thinks he's doing the right thing and he gets rebuked by Jesus and it's the wrong thing. The whole list of things that, uh, so Peter especially has had a really hard day. So he comes back and he finds them sleeping and he only talks to, he only rebukes Peter. Simon, 
he says. And you can see Peter going, you know. <laughs> Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watching with me for one hour? What did Peter just said? said, I'll die for you. I, I, everybody else may follow me, but I'm never going to. And Peter goes, Jesus goes, wait, what did it, you said just a minute ago? And you can't even watch, keep watch? So now he tells them, watch and pray so that, here it is, you won't fall into temptation. He cares about them. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy, but they didn't know what to say to him. It's a little bit reflective of the transfiguration, same sort of thing. They just don't know what to say. Okay, They don't know what to say. Returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough, the hours come. Look, they said they're coming. They're coming. Look, the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go from here. Here comes my betrayer. See, he doesn't say Judas. We don't say Judas from this point. We, we avoid saying Judas. We, we uh, say betrayer. So Jesus is the one that sees people coming from two to 600 armed men. It's not a little ragtag group that we picture, you know, in, from the Jesus movies. Uh, John uses a technical military term, speria, uh, S-P-E-R-I-A is how you transliterate it. It's from two to 600 men and they're armed and they have lamps, they have torches and lanterns because they're expecting a search they're expecting to find Jesus cowering under a bush somewhere, right? Because that's where I would be, <laughs> cowering under a bush somewhere. So uh, let's, yeah, let's, uh, let's stop right here. And um, I'll, I'll, I'll play some. I'm all messed up with my time now. So we go till 1030, right? All day. No. <laughs> Let's, let's look at the, let's look just briefly at the arrest and I'll stop there. And, and uh, then we'll, I'm, I've got a lot of moving pieces here. Okay, just as he was speaking, see they are just now coming. As he was speaking, Judas, one of the 12, appeared, um, with him was a crowd. Mark uses the word crowd, but uh, John uses a more technical term, a detachment, a detachment. Um, with him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs. They're expecting a fight. Sent from the chief priests, teachers of law, and the elders. That's the three. That's the big three. That's the Sanhedrin. Those are the people who've been working on this plot all along. And everything's falling into place. Right? It's, ha it's all coming together perfectly. They got an insider to turn him in. They've got him in a place where there's not a big crowd so they can arrest him. It's just coming together perfectly in, in their mind. Now, the betrayer, hear that language, had arranged a signal with them. So here's, here's the arrangement that Judas has with them. I, I, we looked at this a second ago. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. That's Judas' instructions. Again, I just saw that this morning. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. And the idea is this is their normal greeting. It's not anything out of the ordinary that might tip Jesus off, that something's about to, as if Jesus isn't aware of what's exactly going to happen. But the idea being is that this, they do this all the time. 
This is how the, he greets him. He'll kiss him on the cheek. So he says, Rabbi, um, he kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one, one of those standing near, now, we know who that is, don't we? Right? Why doesn't Mark name him? You know why? Because he's still alive. If you're telling this story, do you want the name of the leader of your movement implicated in, you know, slicing someone with a soldier? No, the first time we are told that it's Peter is John's gospel, and Peter's been dead for 30 years, 40 years. But you don't name the head of your movement as a person who drew a sword and, and whacked away at some guy. That's best just, you don't need to know that, right? Then one of those, because every other time in Mark's gospel, if it's Peter, we know it's Peter, right? Except not this time. Do you see what's happening? We're protecting him. So one of those standing near drew a sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. And Luke, the doctor, lets us know, it's, he calls it his little ear, his ear lobe. Okay, so forensically, you know, we can, we can reconstruct this. If he was cutting off his ear, it would have been one of these, right? Do you think he was aiming for his ear? No. Peter's going like this, and he's not aiming for his ear. Malchus turns his head at the last minute and loses his ear lobe. Peter was going to cut his head off, or at least cut his throat. This is serious business, you know. So, whoosh, loses his earlobe. Um, struck the, uh, <coughs> and I think again, it's John who lets us know that Jesus touches him and heals him. And again, I think that was done in secret. Uh, because if they'd seen that somebody had drawn, drawn blood, you got 200 armed guys and, and what? Okay, that's, that's John, that's not Mark, but let's talk about that. Um, there's a, there's a, it's a complicated little sentence. Um, the, 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 in John, the soldiers draw near, and Jesus walks right up to them, which they are not expecting, right? And he says, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am. And two things happen. The priests fall down. Because that's what you do when you hear the divine name of God spoken, okay? But John uses a military, the soldiers fall back. And that's a military maneuver because they think it's an ambush. We've walked right into an ambush. Who are you looking for? Jesus, well, I'm him. And they go, oh, oh no, you know. So they fall, I, and this is my reconstruction anyway. But it's interesting, John used these two things. The priests fall down and the soldiers fall back. So I think they're assuming some kind of a military position. They're ex expecting a, an ambush. I think, that's what, I think that's what's happening. But it's an interesting little moment. And they're, so they're cowering on the ground and Jesus going, who is it that you want? They're all on the ground and he's still standing up apparently. Jesus of Nazareth, I told you that I'm he. So let these men go. He's protecting, you know, he's protecting his men. That's a, that's a very interesting little moment. So these men seized Jesus, oh, I already got there, um, and cut off his ear. 
verse 48. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you've come out with swords and clubs to capture me? This just isn't appropriate, right? The, 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 the high priests have strong-armed, they've strong-armed this whole thing. They didn't need to do this, right? Every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts and you didn't arrest me. I mean, I tore the temple up, you didn't arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. So they got him and everyone takes off. And he knew exactly that that was going to happen. He told them earlier, you will all leave me alone. And that's exactly what happened. And here's this interesting little cameo. I've got brackets around it in my text. And, and you tell me if there's any reason, if this serves any purpose in the text, except it was written by the guy who wrote this. A young man, wearing nothing but a linen garment, was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. That's got to be Mark. That's got to be Mark. Okay? And I've, I've even heard a really cool uh, reconstruction. Uh, actually, and you can cross-reference Amos 2.16. Uh, even the bravest of warriors will flee naked on that day. There's Amos 2.16. But I've heard a wonderful reconstruction that Mark, who lives in, the, in the, the, the house where all these things have happened, right, with Jesus' ministry, the soldiers go by his house on the way out to the garden. He's in bed. He hears the soldiers go. He jumps out of bed, wraps a sheet around him, and runs to warm Jesus. He gets there too late. You know, it's a wonderful reconstruction. Again, it's all sup, uh, sup, supposition, but, you know, it works for me. Works for me. Okay, so we're going to stop right there, and I'm going to look at some questions. See, I really want to say, does anyone have any questions? But I'm, I'm, that, that's not how we do it here. Um, you know, I, I asked you that question last night about um, um, uh, all the twin stories and how that really bothered me. And this morning, I had a brilliant realization. It's simple. Two eyewitnesses, right? Everything has to be established in the mat. So I'm so proud of myself that I, I thought of that. Okay? So let me read the first question. This is probably too simple but could the twin stories be because of the two eyewitness rule? Yeah. Yeah, I think that, I mean, that's brilliant. See, the simplest answer is gonna be, be the, probably the best answer. Is that, was that you? From God? Okay, yeah, brilliant. Yeah, establish everything in the mouth of two witnesses. Okay. Do the Old Testament prophecies about Christ have events about his first coming and second coming intermixed in the same passages. I don't know. I, I've got to do homework for that one. Nothing comes immediately to mind. I, I do know that every little detail is prophesied of. And I mean, in Matthew, he moves to Nazareth or he comes back to Nazareth and Matthew says, that's to fulfill the prophecy, he will be a Nazarene. I mean, every little detail is prophesied of. I think they're prophecies that we haven't even found yet. But whether uh, they're mixed together in the same passage, my guess is there probably are some passages like that. I just don't have those in my head. So I'm sorry. A, a better Bible teacher would know that, but uh, I'm a banjo player. In the parable of the wicked vine dressers, 
You mentioned the practice in Jesus' time of how the wealthy from Jerusalem would buy up land in Galilee from those who were in debt. Did Israel no longer practice the year of Jubilee? Oh, thank you for that question. Israel never, as far as we know, observed the year of Jubilee. There's no indication ever that they observed Jubilee. Yeah. And again, what is Jubilee? Jubilee it's, like, it's like Sabbath. It's this incredible gift that God gives you, okay? All debts canceled. If you're a slave, you're set free. And you, you, you have a party that lasts a year. You rest for a year. And they didn't want that. But you can imagine the slave owners and the wealthy. That's not such a good idea. Cancel all debts? I don't think so. But, um, huh? Huh? Uh, to my knowledge, they don't. If you can find a passage where they do, let me know, because I need to see that. But I read, because I wrote a song called Jubilee, and I researched it before I wrote the song. One, one you know, somebody that I trust, who I can't name anymore, said that. <laughs> said that. They never observed it. Yeah. So, if, but look for that and find it. If you, if, if, and I will... I will retract my statement. Um, oh, Brother Michael, you should never apologize for the Lord providing the blessing of our late Brother William Lane. Amen. Um, also, please prayerfully consider taking us through the book of Revelation. Uh, I, I actually wrote, I wrote a book on Revelation uh, with, along with my pastor years ago, and I, I put all of the all of the uh, hymn fragments in Revelation to music uh, in a big, big album that, that nobody you know, knows about anymore called Unveiled Hope. Uh, so I, I love Revelation, but that's not my world. For the rest of my life, my world is this, is the life of Jesus. Because I mean, this morning I saw two new things that I'd never seen before. And uh, so, yeah, I like Revelation, but nah, not gonna go there. What does Josephus have to say, if anything, about Jesus' brothers or sisters? Absolutely nothing. Uh, in fact, the, the one statement that we have from Josephus about Jesus is questionable. You know, and then I can't quote it exactly, but it's something like this. And there was this a person named Jesus. There was a man named Jesus, if indeed you can call him a man. And there's this sort of glowing uh, statement about Jesus and, and the... 90% position is some, some scribe stuck that in there. Some copyist put that in there. Josephus didn't say that. Again, just, we just don't know. But he certainly doesn't mention his, uh, his, uh, his, uh, his brothers and sisters. I do know that at some point, I think, it was under, I think it was under the emperor Domitian, at one point they rounded up everyone that, that were still related to Jesus, any of his family, uh, years later. And that because they were going to kill them all because they were afraid there was going to be a rebellion. And they interviewed them and they were all farmers and they said, No, these guys are no problem. We let these guys go. And I think that's in Josephus too. Josephus is our major source of, you know, because think of it uh, in the rest of the Roman world, what is Israel? It's, I mean, it's Bosnia. You know, it's, you know what I'm saying? It's some little backwater place that no. No one, Tacitus, Suetonius, Pliny, none of, those, none of those guys care about Rome. I mean, care about uh, Israel. 
And so the, the most reliable word we have is Josephus, who, who if, if you're interested, was a very interesting character, by the way, very interesting character. Um, he was, he's referred to as Vespasian's pet Jew. Um, yeah, you don't need to know about that. What happened to all of Dr. Lane's research in his books after he passed away? Uh, well, when he, when he moved in with us, he had about 12,000 books. And we set up a research library in Franklin and was open to the public. And he, had, he was writing a book on Paul, and he was a pre-computer guy. He had 11 filing cabinets full of notes on, for one book. I moved them numerous times. Okay. <laughs> And uh, what happened was uh, someone in his family came, uh, they, they were afraid we weren't taking care of the books and they came and took all the books one night. And it, all, it was all divided up amongst different Bible scholars, which is good, that was a good thing. But it was a shock to come into the library and I'd see all the shelves are empty. I was teaching a Bible study that night and I'm sitting amongst all these empty shelves and I've got my Bible. And it's like the Lord said, this is all you need, right? That's all you need. Uh, how often do you get to be with your children and your grandchildren? Any pictures we could see? Oh, you, that's a door you do not want to open. You do not want to go down that door. Okay, so those are, all the, those are all the questions for now. Someone gave me this two days ago, and it's been in my pocket the whole time. By, by now, you've heard about um, the moon, that we're commemorating the moon landing and that sort of thing. Uh, but maybe, let, me ju- let me just read this to you because... Uh, I was so moved by this, and I apologize to the brother who gave me this uh, because it's, I, I hadn't, uh, hadn't seen it. As you've undoubtedly heard by now, this coming Saturday, July 20th, that's tomorrow, right? Okay, cool. So we're not late. Uh, we'll mark the 50th anniversary of man's first landing on the moon back in 1969. Um, I'm going to skip on down. There's one piece of history that nobody knew about until much later, and it's hard to imagine in what some call today's post-Christian, increasingly secular, anti-Christian society. It's certainly not politically correct. What happened was Aldrin, Buzz Aldrin, soon after their lunar lander touched down, paused to take communion. He felt he should do something special to commemorate the historic landing. So he, as a church elder asked his minister back home to consecrate a communion wafer and a small vial of communion juice, and he was given permission by church leadership to administer it to himself. Minutes after their perilous and unprecedented touchdown on the moon, they almost didn't make it, Aldrin radioed this message. This is the lunar module pilot I'd like to take this opportunity to ask everyone listening in, whoever and wherever they may be, to pause for a moment and contemplate the events of the past few hours and to give thanks in his or her own way. Uh, NASA was embroiled in a big um, lawsuit with Madeleine O'Hare because the first time they circled the moon, they had read Genesis. And she took him to court, and it, went, it dragged on for months and months and months. So NASA said, you know, Aldrin was, I guess, going to have a little communion service. They go, best not, you know, advertise that right now. Aldrin had his own way in mind. There on the quiet and desolate lunar surface, a quarter million miles from home, Aldrin read aloud to himself, Armstrong, Neil Armstrong, listening respectively, respectfully but not participating, 
he read a verse from the Gospel of John and he took communion. Here's how he later described what happened. Um, He says, in the radio blackout, I opened the little plastic packages which contained the bread and the wine. I poured the wine into the chalice our church had given me. In the one-sixth gravity of the moon, the wine slowly curled and gracefully came up in the cup. So the first liquid that was ever poured on the moon was a communion cup. Now that should forever change the way we look at the moon. And we just read the story, right? We just read the story. Okay. So here's this sweet guy, this sweet church elder having communion. Um, Then I read the scripture, I'm the vine and you're the branches. Whosoever abides in me will bring forth much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Um, I ate the tiny toast and swallowed the wine. I gave thanks for the intelligent and spirit that had brought two young pilots to the Sea of Tranquility. It was interesting to me to think that the very first liquid ever poured on the moon and the very first food eaten were the elements of communion. Wow. Um, I'll stop there.